Sudan has seen war before. Sudan has not seen war like this before. On April 15th, Sudan's usually placid capital, Khartoum, was rocked by explosions, up to and including artillery and airstrikes. In fighting in Khartoum and elsewhere since, perhaps 1,000 civilians have been killed and more than a million people have fled their homes. Though several ceasefires have been agreed, they have been swiftly broken. It sounds like a civil war, and it wouldn't be Sudan's first, but it isn't. Not really. It is a contest between two factions of Sudan's military, and at heart, between two soldiers, once allies, now enemies. On one side are Sudan's official armed forces, commanded by General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, who has also effectively served as Sudan's head of state since 2019, after spending some while delaying the transition to democracy promised after Sudan's revolution of that year, he threw a coup d'etat in late 2021. On the other are the Paramilitary Rapid Support Forces, or RSF, commanded by Mohamed Hamdan Dagalo, known universally as Hameti. The RSF are a rebrand of the Janjaweed militia, which became deservedly infamous during the Darfur War of the early 21st century. Sudan's president of that period, Omar al-Bashir, is still wanted by the International Criminal Court. Could a disagreement between these two men really wreck a nation? Might this spread beyond Sudan's borders? And can anybody stop this? This is The Foreign Desk. There is a true trauma to the realisation that the place where you were born, you cannot return to, not by choice, but because... There is no airport. The airport has been burnt down. There is no home to go back to because the home has been bombed. There are no people because they've either been displaced or killed. Like, how is this our life now? How is this our life and when will this ever end? Khartoum, as the state capital, has always fought wars against the periphery areas in Sudan. And this time the war by the state has come to Khartoum. So in a way, it's a very grim social equaliser. People of Khartoum now know what people in Darfur, in Blue Nile, in South Kordofan, in other conflict areas have been talking about for the past 60 years since Sudan's independence. And that is, I think, a big wake-up call in terms of a national reckoning with what a militarised state can look like. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. I'm joined, first of all, in the studio by Yasmin Abdul-Majid, the Sudanese-Australian writer, broadcaster and award-winning social advocate. Uh, Yasmin, I want to start by asking about Khartoum itself, the city you were born in, uh, because in recent history it would seem that whatever else has beset the rest of Sudan has tended not to beset the capital. Khartoum has always been the oasis in whatever, as you say, whatever's been happening in Sudan, whether it was conflict in Darfur or the Nubian Mountains or even the long-running civil war in the south. In Khartoum, you could live a whole life and never know anything about it. That's a tragedy in some senses, and I think that was something people in the other parts of Sudan sort of resented about Khartoum. But you could escape from all these other conflicts and find this city that had its own vibrancy and its own 
ecosystem and, and you would walk along the River Nile, the confluence of the two Niles, the Blue and the White Nile, and it was this sort of beautiful, calm place that, I mean, I was born there, I got married there, and, and I remember actually when we were inviting guests from you know Australia and the UK and so on to Khartoum for the wedding, everyone was sort of like, oh, <laughs> is anything going to happen? Is it terrifying? And we were like, genuinely... This is one of the safest places in the country, in the region. I mean, it's fascinating, I think, to try to tell the story of a city that people kind of have no concept of. But what I would say is that the lives of my cousins in Khartoum were fancier in many ways and bougier than the life that I lived in Brisbane, than the life I lived in London. I mean, my cousin would visit me and, you know, the ones that could get visas would visit me in London and be like, wow, you live in such a small, cramped space and you have to cook for yourself and wash your own clothes. Like, what is this? So you could really live uh, solid middle-class lives that went to very good universities. And again, Although the quality of life was decreasing over time, Khartoum was always this wonderful place. What is your sense of how people are adapting? You've presumably been in touch a lot with friends and family who are still there. Yes, it's actually fascinating how quickly humans can adapt. Mm. So the conflict began on April the 15th and some of my family elected to leave as soon as they could. Some were like, we will die in this house whether you like it or not. We're not moving. My aunt was like, we're far too old to make such a journey. So, you know, the ones that have decided to stay for a long time, it was the focus was on, you know, electricity and water and just kind of getting through the day to day. But just the other day, my auntie sent me a voice note of, she was like, well, you know, we woke up this morning and we could actually hear the sounds of the birds chirping and children were playing outside. And so somehow the noise of the shelling and the artillery has become normalised to the point where life is starting to in some ways begin again. The tea lady is trying to sell tea, Mm. you know, to whoever is walking past. I mean, it is still a live conflict zone. As you and I are speaking, there's technically a ceasefire. And I think it is fair to say that in some parts of Khartoum, there have been a decrease in the shelling because of the requirement of humanitarian safe passages and so on. However... I think as things drag, as we enter the rainy season, as, you know, it becomes more difficult for people to get money, we can see this kind of become protracted. I mean, one of the main issues actually at the moment is that a lot of the houses are being looted. So my Mm. own, you know, the house that I was born in, we have evidence and reports that, you know, the militia have, have looted these places and are staying in them. And so, you know, for those who have left, they don't know if they have any place to return to. And for those who are in their houses, they don't know if they are safe. And it's those kind of threats that constantly interrupt any adaptation that I think your average citizen, that's what they're trying to deal with at the moment. Again, early days, but do you get any sense of any kind of, and it would be difficult in these circumstances, but organised civil society response to this conflict? Because one feature of Sudan over the last few years has been this extraordinarily energetic civil society, repeatedly thwarted by a variety of factors and upheavals, but it's there. I was speaking to a Lebanese sort of policy friend of mine recently and I was sort of lamenting that we, the Sudanese people, have been cursed with terrible political leaders for decades and decades. And she said, yes, that's true, but you've also been blessed with some of the best organised communities, civil society that I've ever seen. And I think it's true. I think 
at the moment you've got resistance committees. So these small committees that kind of came up, neighborhood committees that came up in the 2018-19 revolution, mm. who have formalized, rather than simply just being resistance against the regime, they're now, they're sort of humanitarian aid movements that are local, that in the early days of the conflict were helping people escape, were providing medical assistance and so on. And they're all sort of volunteers, kind of working at a very, very grassroots level. Around the diaspora, there's all sorts of organizing movements that, I mean, I'm part of a movement, for example, that's trying to support Sudanese people at the border with Egypt, trying to help get them through and provide basic things like shelter and medical support and so on. Whether the people are able to translate that to the sort of highest diplomatic level, that's always been the challenge, right? And that's also where the international community, I think, bears some responsibility because rather than engaging with these resistance committees, rather than engaging with the groups that are actually on the ground, they went to the familiar tried and true. They went to the generals. They went to the very old school political groups that have been there for a long time and aren't actually connected to the civil society. And so what really needs to happen is the translation of what's happening on the ground to the diplomatic level and also also, frankly, the upskilling of some of the people in the resistance committees, because what it takes to do grassroots organizing isn't quite the same as what it takes to govern a country. And people need to be shown how to do that in an effective way and shown how to wield that power without themselves becoming corrupted. Just finally, you you mentioned the Sudanese diaspora, which is large and sprawling. Is there a way you can explain to listeners who, if they're lucky, will have no experience of such a situation, what it feels like to turn on the news every day and see events like this, you know, besetting the city you grew up in? For me personally, it feels like your heart constantly falling out of your chest. To be perfectly honest, I spent the first week or two of the conflict just bursting into tears on the tube and as I was walking to various meetings, just being overwhelmed because I think there is a true trauma to the realisation that the place where you were born, you cannot return to, not by choice, but because... There is no airport. The airport has been burnt down. There is no home to go back to because the home has been bombed. There are no people because they've either been displaced or killed. I woke up on April the 15th and my dad had sent me a message and said, something's happened in Khartoum. And then I opened the family WhatsApp group and there was a voice note from my aunt. And it was just the rat-tat-tat of artillery and the sounds of bombs going off from planes overhead and her praying, Ya Latif, Ya Latif, Ya Latif. And I thought, like, how is this our life now? How is this our life? And when will this ever end? Yasmin Abdul-Majid, thank you for joining us. This is The Foreign Desk on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Foreign Desk on Monocle Radio. For a wider look at Sudan's conflict and its possible ramifications, I'm joined from Dubai by Kholud Haye, a Sudanese political analyst and founding director at Confluence Advisory, a think tank in Khartoum, and from Cairo by Matt Nashed, an investigative journalist covering the Middle East and Africa. Kholud, uh, I'll start with you. Let's begin by looking at the two generals at the centre of this conflict. Is it clear to you what either Albert or Hermeti think victory looks like? I think both think that victory looks like the extermination of the other because they have gotten to a stage where they have found it very difficult to reconcile the existence of the other in the political landscape. And that's because their 
post-coup consolidation project, uh, projects look very, very different from one to the other. And so there's nowhere to really incorporate the wishes of the other or even the existence of the other in those post-coup consolidation projects. And we have to remember that they led the coup together in October of 2021, but we've seen them diverge significantly since then. I think to some extent they get, they're getting an understanding that this conflict will not be resolved quickly, which is clearly what they had thought at the beginning. They're still not yet there, I think, at the stage where they can recognize that actually they can't eliminate the other. And they certainly can't eliminate the institutions. The rapid support forces cannot eliminate the Sudan armed forces. They are the official armed institution of the country. And to some extent, also vice versa, the paramilitary forces have entrenched themselves in Sudan's politics and its economy to the extent that it'll be very difficult to get to vanquish them entirely. So they will have to live with some kind of accommodation of the other. The fear is right now that that's the only calculation that there'll be, that they will will end up moving towards another power sharing agreement between the generals, um, which will still entrench military rule rather than move away from military rule altogether and towards some kind of civilian dispensation. Matt, would you say that this conflict is entirely self-contained between these two generals and the forces they command? Do either of them have any kind of wider constituency among the Sudanese public? Uh, Minimally, perhaps. I wouldn't say either one has a strong constituency whatsoever. The military right now might have some people that would prefer the lesser of two evils the way that they word it. But I wouldn't mistake that necessarily for support for the military. I think when we look broader into the pro-democracy movement, which probably is the last and has been for a while the only credible actor within the country, civilian or military, I think across the board, there's ongoing approach of neutrality here. And we're seeing that neutrality in the way that they provide service provisions, in the way that they release statements, and in the way that they condemn both sides within this conflict. On the RSF side, I think their constituency in Khartoum, particularly and within the centers of Sudan, is more or less non-existent. I don't think they have very much except for personalities they've co-opted over time, business interests they've co-opted over time. But I don't think that these are true loyal constituencies. It's based on a transactional nature. When you shift towards Darfur, which is the group's stronghold, I would argue they don't have a major constituency there. I think they have a stronger constituency. I think at the same time that constituency is based on old tribal loyalties and ongoing tribal loyalties as well. But even within these tribal loyalties to a point, there are contestations to the RSF's rule, perhaps towards other tribal leaders from the past or towards as well, perhaps even youth and peace run initiatives within these tribal councils and whatnot, where the RSF claims to have unanimous constituents. I think what's what's really propelling both of them and allowing them to expand any facade of support is uh, finances. It's the militarization of the economy. It is the more that the war economy expands as the state collapses. And we know that the monopoly of finances in the country is the military and the RSF. 
So then the human condition of people that are trying to navigate a reality for themselves the longer this war drags on could potentially be dragged into one side or the other if it secures them basic services, a paycheck, something for their families to support. And then this is what's worrying. But based on a political philosophy or ideology or loyalty to these leaders, I think both are extremely limited in terms of the support that they can claim they have in the country. Holud, I want to go back to something you were saying earlier about how you believe that this may sadly end up being quite a protracted conflict. But if neither of these two generals, and especially not Hamedti, have any popular constituency they can draw upon, how possible is that going to be? Well, we have to remember that, as Matt was alluding to just there, that the Sudan Armed Forces and the Rapid Support Forces are some of the biggest employers in the country. And as long as they are able to continue to be employers, to provide an income for people, to provide a way out for others, economically speaking, then they will continue to be able to recruit, um, sometimes even transnationally, particularly for their Rapid Support Forces. And in doing so, they will be able to keep the conflict going. Now, they're also having to rely, of course, on supplies coming in, particularly fuel as well as arms. And it's the limiting factor, I think, is if if those things are targeted, their money is targeted, the fuel supplies, their arms supplies are targeted, we could see a shortening of this war. But as long as they have those money supplies very much there, they will be able to continue to recruit. And that's the danger, that we will see this continuation of this conflict until such time that both uh, generals and their institutions are ready to come to the negotiating table to negotiate for a settlement out of this conflict. The difficulty is if we see the fragmentation of one or both of those groups, the Sudan Armed Forces and the Rapid Support Forces, before we reach that stage, at which point you're not really sure if you're speaking to the right people when either side sends a single delegation. Matt, if this conflict does continue and escalates even further within Sudan, how great is the danger that it might not be contained within Sudan's borders? Yeah, I think we need to speak in terms of various gradients and levels. I think I would argue right now that the conflict already hasn't been contained. We have more than a million people that are uprooted. We have refugee crisis into Egypt. We have clearly recruiting, as Khalud was uh, alluding to, on a transporter basis, particularly for the paramilitary forces, the RSF videos of people declaring their allegiance to them as far as Niger and Chad as well. There are permutations that spread across from the region of Darfur and into Chad. So we are seeing to some extent, I would still classify it as a limited extent, an internationalization of the conflict. We're seeing reports of Haftar from Libya and his sons that have business interests with Himiti providing uncertain amount of support. It's difficult to qualify that at the moment. The question is, as you posed, how much more worse could it get? And I think it can get incredibly bad if the mediation isn't consolidated to stop the fighting as soon as possible. And I think it can get quite bad, not just on a toll of when we're talking about human suffering, human displacement, and obviously, of course, the integration of conflicts into other conflicts within the region. But I think also in terms of some of the biggest countries in the world, when they're looking at it from a geopolitical and strategic interest perspective, I think they have a lot to lose as well. I think when we look at a country like China's Belt and Road Initiatives, 
how much it depends on South Sudan for its oil. South Sudan is very much going to be impacted potentially by what happens in Sudan, especially if oil supplies get disrupted, since oil in Sudan and South Sudan relies on pipelines to Sudan to get it out. China, that's going to hit them exceptionally hard. We're going to see Saudi Arabia, for instance, being increasingly more more alarmed at security within the Red Sea, particularly, especially as it shares close proximity to Sudan, and in terms of food security for much of the Gulf and their investments in the country, in which they brought a lot of this onto themselves by investing in the very military generals or paramilitary generals in hopes of safeguarding these investments. And now these very generals actually threaten to hurt these investments or essentially just kind of eradicate these investments in a lot of ways. So I think both from a human toll perspective, of course, and integration of conflicts and the more that we can see allegiances and recruitment and fighters integrate conflicts across borders, that's one level. And then the other level, of course, is what do larger partners, larger countries, larger world powers have to lose if we do see a conflict that becomes substantially now porous in nature, threatening a number of strategic assets and interests of very powerful countries. Uh, Khalud, given that, as Matt just outlined, a a wider conflict in East Africa doesn't appear to be in the interests of anybody, uh, least of all some of those much bigger countries such as China, Russia, the UAE, which have considerable economic interests in Sudan that they don't want to get smashed up. Is there sufficient leverage among those that could persuade the two warring sides to stop this? There is considerable leverage. The question is, will it be used? I think the longer this conflict goes on, the more the supporters of either of those of the two factions, and they are two factions of the same military project, not distinct military entities, that supporters of these two factions will sort of fall in line with with the idea that it's one or the other. And if that's the case, then they will continue to fuel the conflict. And we're already seeing shades of that. And the difficulty is that the region that the immediate neighbors, the region, and then the international supporters and patrons will start to sort of be cleaved into two very distinct camps. Right now, a lot of them exist in a neutral stance. If not a neutral stance, then a stance that is not profoundly for one side or the other. I think the one silver lining is, and, and you know, the solutions for this have to come domestically. There is no international solution to this issue. The one silver lining is that two things. One, you know, Khartoum as the state capital has always fought wars against the periphery areas in Sudan. And this time the war by the state has come to Khartoum. So in a way, it's a very grim social equalizer. People of Khartoum now know what people in Darfur and Blue Nile and South Kordofan and other conflict areas have been talking about for the past 60 years since Sudan's independence. And that is, I think, a big wake-up call in terms of a national reckoning with what a militarized state can look like. We now know what the counterfactual of what if Sudan were entirely engulfed in a conflict would look like. And because of that, the second thing is that both these generals had been for four years now, since the fall of President Omar al-Bashir, have been trying to persuade the international community, but also domestic constituents, that they could be the midwives of a civilian democratic Sudan. And that is now completely out of the question. They have, in many ways, lost legitimacy. They have lost enough legitimacy to forfeit, I think, any claim to sovereign positions or power in the future. And that, more than anything else we've seen in the past four years, should open up the avenues and the pathways for a much more 
you know, singularly civilian political dispensation. Now, will we get there quickly? Probably not, because while we have a conflict between two military factions, there will need to be some level of accommodation of those factions to get them to stop fighting. But is the argument now much more easy to make that neither Burhan nor Hemeti can be the arbiters of stability? Yes. Is it easier to make the argument now that neither one of them is interested in civilian democratic rule to the extent that they would fight a war in the capital, displacing so many and creating humanitarian disaster in order to avert handing power over to a civilian government? Yes. Now, will that automatically and very easily translate into the international community supporting a fully civilian dispensation in Sudan? I don't know, precisely because, as Matt said earlier, there are geostrategic considerations right now. And the more this conflict continues, the more international partners will get drawn into some of these very militarized conversations. The aim of the game now is to refocus the attention on what hasn't been lost, even though this conflict is very much ongoing, even though it's very violent, even though it has created a massive humanitarian situation across the country, there are still very powerful civilian pro-democracy actors who are not just pushing back against the war, but are also providing humanitarian response on the ground. That is the kind of uh, longevity, that is the kind of resilience of a pro-democracy movement that we would want to see in order to be able to peg the future hopes of civilian democratic rule on Sudan on such a movement. So, you know, all is not lost. And Matt, just finally, is there somewhere in that civil society that Holud mentions there any opportunity for some outside mediator or interlocutor? Something there that somebody can work with, perhaps going around the two military factions? I mean, I think to piggyback off of Holud's point, there needs to be, I think, considerations for today and preparations for the day after. And so there right now in Sudan is a crisis of legitimacy. And this is leaves an opportunity on one hand and a very scary forecast if that opportunity is missed on the other hand. Uh, the scary opportunity is that essentially the country devolves into lawlessness between two belligerents that have no claim for legitimacy and the international community, again, sidetracking an opportunity to run a parallel track that should be integrated in which there is a civilian dispensation that is empowered at the expense of the two military factions, which is the opposite of what they did in the past. Where does civil society fit into this, to your point? I think we need to look at civil society in terms of what are their fundamental demands, as opposed to first and foremost, not neglecting the possibility of bringing in civil society into a table, into a political process, which I think is going to be up to how civil society sees itself and how they evolve throughout the course of Sudanese politics. But I think first and foremost is the process in itself and who writes the rules of the game. And I think the rules of the game already have been outlined by the pro-democracy groups, these vibrant civil society actors, which despite how heterogeneous they are, and you know, people would say horizontal, I think there is horizontal, but I think there's clear leadership there at the same time. And there's clear platforms and, and charters and demands of what they want a political process to look like and how they want the means to the process and what ends they want to see. The means being they don't want compromising with military factions and the ends being they want full civilian rule. So I think there needs to be a stated and sincere objective up front, both privately to build confidence and then eventually more publicly of this is the point that we're trying to arrive to in Sudan. And we're trying to enable and empower full civilian rule through rallying behind these demands 
and a way of this process of making sense that civil society, particularly the resistance neighborhood committees, which is the most astute actor in Sudan, have been calling for. And so I think this is the only groups through service provision that inherently brings credibility towards it, but also through the amount of people that have died asking for these demands as well and that are unarmed. So the question of the international community is, do they want to, again, acquiesce to the demands of military actors, you know, in its full entirety, or do they want to take a different approach and finally find imaginative ways in which they can accommodate a new track to be empowered and integrated of where full civilian rule is on the map. And this is based on the demands and credibility that civil society in Sudan inherently has. Matt Nashed and Holod Hayat, thank you very much for joining us here on The Foreign Desk. That's it for this episode of The Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week and look out for The Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. Next Saturday's edition of The Foreign Desk will be a special episode recorded at the Globesec conference in Bratislava. And if you're going to Globesec, come and find us and say hello. The Foreign Desk was produced and edited by Emma Searle, Christy O'Grady and David Stevens. Christy also produces The Foreign Desk Explainer. To contact The Foreign Desk team, you can email emma at es at monocle.com. And don't forget to subscribe to Monocle magazine and our free daily email bulletins by heading to our website at monocle.com. From me, Andrew Muller, thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.